Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland and today I'm joined by Dr Yan Wu, Associate Professor in Media and Communication Studies, and Tom Crick, Professor of Digital Education and Policy, both of whom are from Swansea University. Jan's research focuses on digital inclusivity with sensory impaired people, whilst Tom explores how we can best prepare young people to become digitally confident and capable citizens. Jan, Tom, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for having us. Can I get you both to start off just by introducing your research? I'll give you about 60 seconds each. So, Jan, you can go first. Okay, thank you very much, Sam. So, my research focuses on digital inclusivity. I have been researching into the issues of sensory impaired people's access to and their usage of digital media in Wales. This led to another project recently looking into the use of digital media by the elderly who often suffer from sensory impairments. Wonderful. Thank you. And Tom? Thanks, Sam. I suppose I'm interested in digital in the broadest sense, how it cuts across um, society, culture and the economy and and infrastructure and, and the kind of the wide impacts it has on people's lives. But I suppose specifically, this has been around major education and curriculum and qualifications reform in Wales. So we've seen this massive shift about what can we do within formal education? So what do young people learn at school? How does this prepare them for being part of a digital data-driven computational world? Okay, wonderful. I think there's loads to dig into there with with both of you. Let's just cut straight to the chase. We're in the middle of, of a health crisis where digital and digital technologies have come to the fore and are more of a discussion point and a, and a talking point, everything from communication to, to shopping. So how has this affected what you both work on, digital inclusivity? So maybe let's talk about young people first and maybe people from less affluent backgrounds, particularly Tom. Yeah, I mean, obviously the COVID-19 kind of pandemic has had you know, it's a profound impact on everyone in, in sort of a range of different ways. I think we've all been very aware of the massive impact this has had on the education system across all settings. So clearly schools, colleges and, and universities, but I think it's been most keenly felt with the impact it's had on compulsory education. So what has this meant for people going to school? What has the impact been on, on teachers and practitioners, certainly in Wales and across across the UK and the world? And then also, what does this look like in the context of things like summer examinations and qualifications? So we've seen the massive disruption to GCSEs and A-levels over the past year or so. And obviously, we're not in any kind of post-COVID context yet. So we are still, this is still our lived experience. We're still seeing a range of different impacts from COVID in this academic year and likely into the next academic year. But I think also we're seeing how this has really exposed some challenges around Digital, you know, we are talking about digital inclusion or digital exclusion. We're talking about inequalities or inequities around how young people, in particular, from certain backgrounds, are have are the challenges they face about accessing education, remote learning, and teaching, but also therefore how they are best prepared for engaging in a digital society and culture and economy. It's probably worth stressing, isn't it, Tom, that the, the way in which everybody has to work now, but particularly children, has changed so quickly and so suddenly the, the 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 amount of online learning and homeschooling has increased sort of almost exponentially hasn't it so it makes this discussion point so so relevant yeah and again i think it's it's interesting how people haven't really thought about this too much i suppose you know we we've, we've had very well established you know the open universities kind of model of a sort mm. of distance learning blended learning approach you know there's a very you know maybe universities have a range of different sort of online and distance learning type programs particularly postgraduate programs but i think this is really exposed to to, to sort of general society 
around how challenging it is to effectively deliver a- education. And I mean that instead of it's hard enough to deliver teaching, it's even harder to deliver learning or to facilitate learning remotely. So I think this has really kind of brought to the fore some of the challenges around digital pedagogy and practice, and also the barriers and the infrastructure required, the skills, the competencies, the pedagogies, all of this stuff to, to, to allow this to work as efficiently as possible for for a range of different types of learners. And that's keenly found in Wales because we've got, you know, English medium, we've got Welsh medium, and obviously the challenges of kind of rurality across different parts of Wales. So when you're talking about connectivity, you can't just assume that people can have high speed internet access to engage with lessons on Zoom or to access materials online. So there are still a range of challenges and this isn't fixed. Yeah, you mentioned a few really key things there. You mentioned skills, you mentioned geography, you mentioned the sort of practicality of all of it. Just on a on, on a complete sort of back to basics thing here, you know, what are some of the fundamental hurdles that people have got to overcome or young people have got to overcome? I, I'm thinking for, for me, when I was when I was growing up, I grew up in in sort of really rural West Wales. I'd have struggled to and uh, probably still would struggle to to homeschool effectively from there because the internet speeds are just so slow. Very, very simple practical things like this are having huge impacts yeah. on me. No, totally. And I think, I mean, I suppose I'd probably want to state right at the, at the start, I think I think teachers in general in Wales have made an absolutely fantastic effort. And I think, I think the Welsh government have been pretty clear with their policy and guidance to try and address some of the, the kind of the challenges around remote learning, teaching and assessment. I think it, some of these things cannot be solved quickly. So if you think about the immediate aftermath of the kind of lockdown in from March 2020 onwards, that kind of terms worth of work, I think there was things were implemented at pace at scale on a national scale to roll out and to resource and provision kind of remote learning across all different settings and contexts in Wales. But I still think we we probably underestimated the the scale of the challenge because there will be learners who you, know, you can't make assumptions about learners having devices and you mm. can't make assumptions about learners having the, the type of connectivity you'd like them to have. And, and I suppose also you can't make assumptions that learners have the right kind of environment at home, which would facilitate kind of productive learning and teaching. So, you know, in, in, you know clearly not all learners have their parents at home all the time to support them in their kind of learning and teaching. So I think acknowledging that diversity um, of, of sort of challenge and trying to put measures in place as much as possible has probably been has probably been the, one of the biggest challenges that has been faced over the past year. And not all of those have gone away because we acknowledge that there is digital and data poverty. So some people do not have the connectivity to access online learning, teaching and assessment. And yes, Welsh government and UK government have done stuff in England to give devices to young people. But I think it has exposed there are infrastructural issues, but I think there are also longer term issues around confidence in practice to be able to do this effectively if this becomes part of delivery much more routinely in the future. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. And I know the the stereotype is often of young people who've got you know a laptop and then two phones and a tablet and all this kind of stuff. But do we have any data about um, say the numbers of people who don't have, for example, regular access to a PC or a or a laptop at home? Yeah. So so uh, again, there's there's a range of different statistics. I suppose this this sort of pulls in wider work around I suppose digital inclusion or you know kind of digital exclusion in that sense. But I think there's there's a range of Ofcom statistics. They kind of do annual annual kind of reporting around you know, kind of population representative reporting around, you know, how do people connect to the internet? What things do they do? Kind of what services do they access? 
Do they use social media? What kind of devices they use? Do they have fixed broadband? Do they have mobile broadband? I think it's quite surprising how the proportion of households who do not have, so they have the ability to kind of access kind of high quality broadband at home. But I suppose it is about the affordability of that as a, as a kind of a household expense. So, and I think that the point around devices is also really key because, you know, we're seeing this in a university context. I think we make, we can still make big assumptions about our learners at university because yeah. some of my students frequently, you know, connect to lectures on their mobile phone. So that's quite hard to, to, you know, to make notes and to, to kind of engage in learning or to access the virtual learning environment if you're listening to a lecture um, or a seminar over Zoom on your phone. Big interventions and measures have been have been done over the past year or so, but I think it has really exposed the scale of the challenge to to ensure that all learners have you know some level of uh, kind of access to the right kind of technologies. They have the right level of connectivity, and I suppose they have the right kind of support at home. And I suppose that's been the challenge as we've started to move back into schools over the recent period. How do you balance? How do you ensure that you know there's the parental there's the parental support and they are able to meaningfully engage in learning when they're when they're not in in a school context. And just a final thought from you, Tom, before I move to Jan, and perhaps this is something you don't focus on, or perhaps it's something you will, we'll, we'll talk about later on in the in the podcast, but is there a concern that because of lots of the things that you've already mentioned with lots of young people's environment in which they work at home being very different to other people, that actually the inequalities and the divides that already exist will actually be widened or have been widened because of the way in which people can or can't access you know, their resources and, and the way in which digital learning works? I, th- I think this has probably exposed a slightly kind of one-dimensional view of kind of if you think about kind of national infrastructure investments. If you think about Welsh and UK government policy in this space, you know there's been a big focus on you know getting fibre to the, you know installing fibre, superfast Cymru, kind of superfast broadband accessibility for the biggest, the highest proportion of the population over the past kind of ten years. That's been a stated kind of governmental aim to kind of you know minimum service provisions, all of this kind of stuff. I think that doesn't mean that people are able to to engage with that those services because of the affordability and i think also this you know i think we have to be very careful about the overhyping what you know has been termed learning loss so you know i think there's been a lot of stuff in the press recently about saying there's been a huge so some learners have have had a massive learning loss because of covid the evidence base is, is quite mixed in that. And I think some of that is quite multidimensional, multifaceted, and there's lots of variables that impact upon that. But I think this probably reaffirms the importance of digital skills more generally. And that's both for learners, for practitioners, for parents, and more of a societal general public thing to say, this is such a key part of an aspect of our lives. So, you know, clearly educationally, but, you know, kind of socially, culturally, and very clearly economically, that the, the just it seems strange reflecting back over the past ten years when we were having to justify why this stuff should be a core part of the of the curriculum. Now it is, but now we've got this wider societal piece to say we want people to be digitally confident and capable because it allows them to make decisions about their lives and it allows them to engage in digital public services. It allows them to understand that algorithmic governance and transparency. It allows them to understand mm-hmm. that you know our world is inherently kind of data driven and computational. I think we've, we're probably on the road to cracking some of the stuff in schools. And in a formal education context, now we've got that bigger piece to say we need a digitally confident and capable Wales. So there's there's that kind of, you know, there is that there's a big societal challenge kind of looming ahead. Thank you. Jan, can we talk about your work and how you focus on disabled and elderly people? How has the last year and and more affected them? Uh, That's a very good question. That's a very good leading into the story, really. The COVID crisis and the consequent lockdown measures 
as we all know, heightened our society's reliance on digital media communication technologies. And this is not going to be just a affect us for a short period of time because the COVID crisis has already uh, sped up the digital transformation in all sectors and it's going to continue. So the danger of that is, on the other hand, is could exacerbate the digital inequalities in existence. So over the years, I have been working with many RNIB uh, users, members. So I know particularly from some of the RNB members, I felt the COVID crisis and the lockdown in particular really affect this community greatly. The first thing is, it's interesting link to Tom's some of the comments. So one of the sighting impaired person I've known, she's doing a degree currently. So that's actually the, the lockdown has huge impact on her learning experience. So first that she needs to have access. So previously she has this access on campus with the devices provided by the university, assistive technology provided by the university. And now this working from home affected this. She first need to have the access. Then the next problem she faces the compatibility between the virtual learning environment and her device and other assistive technologies. And also this is on top of that is that she cannot afford any digital device doesn't work. She was very competent digital media user, but during the lockdown, her mobile phone broke and it's become very, very difficult for her to manage daily lives because while learning, while my research, I, I was actually growing in learning uh, with the, uh, my participants. Mm. I downloaded a lot of apps in helping the sight impaired users to navigate their life. So I could totally imagine when the mobile phone broke down, all those apps you have no access. So that's a lot of a challenges. And also I think for people without sensory impairment, it's probably not very difficult for us to navigate the physical space. But for sighting pad users, now when we go to the supermarket, for example, you have to be in the queue, you know which part of the trolley has been sanitized, which part is not. And also queue, you have to observe the social distancing policy, and you probably wouldn't be able to access products on the shelves as easily as you used to. So there were really, really a lot of challenges. So the danger I think here is therefore more research, more work need to be done to help this community, to bridge the gaps before this gap would be further widened. It's interesting also, because um, I said earlier, my research in Wales also led to a recent project with colleagues in China to researching the elderly's use of digital media in China during the COVID lockdown. It's interesting to see that is because this probably relates to how it's a different kind of a social culture. Because in China, because a lot of families, they actually several generations, three generations could live together. It's interesting. We're still analyzing the data gathered from our research. Just a glancing through the data, there's some themes emerge. In China, for example, this intergenerational learning has been brought actually benefits to the elderly who often suffer from sensory impairment. When the COVID crisis hit, there's a lot of a school, university closed, young people return home because they often live with their grandparents. So actually offered them an opportunity to teach their grandparents 
something new about the digital media. That was fascinating. It's a kind of a uplifting to read those stories as well. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the comparative work that you do between China and Wales? I mean, that sounds fascinating in and of itself, but how do you go about doing that sorts of research? I started really as a project traced back probably almost 10 years ago, researching how deaf and hard of hearing users use digital television after Wales became the first digital nation after the switchover. When I started that research, that probably back in 2012. So built upon that research, uh, we found that actually the digital, after the digital switchover, when the analog television was switched off and everybody's using digital television, with the subtitles really provided an easier, more accessible, or easier, convenient access to content for the hard of hearing users. Then we've found that actually some users like it, some users actually found further barriers associated with the using the subtitles. This is in particular applied to Wales because we have the bilingual system. Based on that research, we recommended three changes to S4C and S4C adopted those suggested changes and aiming to provide better service for the sensory impaired community. Building upon that research, we expanded the scope of research by working with RNIB as well. So then we started working with RNIB, run survey among blind and sight impaired users in Wales. So this is the work in Wales so far. We're mainly just focusing on sensory impaired users because there's actually, surprisingly enough, there seems to be a lack of research in this area. Sometimes I think it's worthwhile to change the direction a bit. It's what benefits this vulnerable community can get from the technology. Technology needs to be tailored to the user's need. If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. And you've mentioned the RNIB a few times. That's obviously the Royal National Institute of Blind People. How did you how yes. did you forge that link with them in the first place? How did you start working with them? Started working with uh, action on hearing loss, and uh, uh, at the time was uh, Richard Williams. He kindly introduced me to colleagues in RNIB, and I got in touch. And when I suggested to RNIB, I thought this topic might interest you because I want to help you to find out the adoption of digital technology and the preference of digital technology by blind and sight impaired users in Wales. RNIB really welcomed the suggestion and they fully supported the research. I cannot thank them enough. But because also this is what RNIB has been doing. There at a the time, RNIB have this project, major project across the nation to support people with, with sensory impairment to use digital technology. It's very interesting because I went to some of the workshops uh, organized in Singapore Hospital. Some were, would be organized in community center or library. So, for example, there's an elderly couple. The elderly gentleman received this wonderful gift of a smartphone from his children at Christmas. The unboxing experience was exciting because that was when family gathered around and uh, his son uh, unboxed the smartphone, set it up for him. But of course, after Christmas, his children left 
and back to wherever they were in big cities. And he was left with smartphone, but he, in most cases, he used the smartphone as if was not so smart. So in those workshop, that's the digital officers role from RNIB, they did a fantastic job in carrying on that unboxing experience, support the sensory impaired users, because a lot of assistive technology actually if, if embedded accessible features in the devices. It just need to be uncovered. So I remember that elderly gentleman, when he found out, he actually talked to the phone, the voice activated the technology actually working. He found it fascinating. He just, he just can't tell Siren to dial the number and call his son. So that really changed the picture. The thing I found is even in, for people, sensory impaired people or elderly, even when they have the devices, a lot of the cases is they had the device set up for them, but then that support, usually the children, with left. Then they were left with the smart device. They don't know how to operate. So at the time, the digital officer from RNIB tried to bridge this gap. At the time, they also want to find out what exactly nationwide, how many people actually have access to, to assistive technology, to smart technology. So that's how we started this research together onto this journey. And that later led to another research project. We run focus groups with our RNIB members on Swansea University campus, try to explore the use of voice-activated digital devices. Some of them are blind and sight-impaired, and some of the users have dual sensory impairment. I love having these conversations because they make me think of things that I'd just never come across before or never thought about before at all. And when you were describing people with visual impairments in the supermarket, having apps to help them and things like that, it's just, it just made me think, well, that's, that, that, that is so interesting. But I wondered, to what extent do you think the current technology, some of which you've mentioned, you know, smartphones, but also websites, particular apps, to what extent are these things fit for purpose at the moment? Or are there lots of areas in which things can improve Technology design need a new agenda, which should be include, incorporate users, particular disabled users. Because currently, if you think of how, what are the devices or smart technologies or digital economy, that's probably mostly driven that by, by tech, really driven by technology. What can we make the technology better, faster? But sometimes, actually, some devices might look like low-tech, might look like long-lasting, might not bring immediate economical benefit to the industry, but it could actually empower the users. It could actually bring convenience to this user's life. We therefore think that agenda need to be brought into the industry in both public and the private sectors. So this is, has been argued by other researchers as well, the resonant design approach, which means the technology design need to incorporate users based on coincident needs. So that's we, when I say we, because I led a research team, the team consists of a colleagues from media communication department, as well as colleagues from computer science department. So that's what we hope to bring in. That's why the focus group was organized on campus. We hope to really find out what the users, the need, and turn the technology around 
tailor the technology to fit into their needs. Some of the devices actually, I don't want to leak too much details. So for example, some devices, it's really helped the sight-impaired users to gain better service, better access. But when it's updated, the newer version actually wouldn't work that well in terms of accessibility. This actually has been an issue with the sensory impaired community in terms of their use of the technology. Great, thank you. Tom, can I come back to you and just ask you a, a very short question, which is, what does it mean to be a digitally confident and capable citizen? That is a great question. I suppose maybe that maybe this podcast uh, is, isn't long enough to kind of cover that. I think <laughs> I suppose part of that is around the kind of the flexibility and fluency, and I suppose it is, it is acknowledging the the range of things we would like people or citizens to be empowered by, or for them to be empowered to do in a digital sense. So, you know, we've asked this in the context of formal curriculum reform in Wales over the past kind of eight years. As some of the work that I was involved in, I, I chaired the review of the ICT curriculum back in 2013. And as part of the outcomes of that, we developed a, a cross-curricular digital competence framework, bilingual, statutory, so digital competence will be statutory in the new curriculum for Wales. And I think it asks that kind of question around what do we expect, you know, what, what would we want to, to support young people being able to do? And I think that's the key thing. You know, if you're four or eight or 12 or 16, then there's a range of kind of competencies, skills, behaviours, dispositions, fluencies that we would like young people to have. And that's not predicated on specific tools and technology. So we're not trying to say we want young people to be able to use Microsoft Word or, you know, or only use Microsoft Word or only know how to create a presentation in, in this in this application. So I think it is about like, you know, do they want to create digital media? Do they want to be able to program? Do they want to be able to, you know, sort of physical computing? Do they want to be able to better understand how their data is shared? So I think quite a broad understanding of what we mean by being digitally competent. So, you, you know, you understand about your personal data, you understand about communication and collaboration, you know, interacting and making and creating. And then I suppose all the, the kind of the positive aspects and you know, what does it empower people to do? but perhaps acknowledging some of the potential negative aspects. So, you know, kind of e-safety and identity theft and, you know, kind of digital rights and all that kind of stuff. So in that sense, if you think about that as a, as a wider societal question, I suppose you could you could maybe answer it by saying, well, actually providing people or citizens with the, the training and the confidence and the capability to be able to live the, their life as, as to the extent they want to, to be able to access digital public services, to be able to, to to do stuff confidently online, to to get the types of jobs and and have the types of careers they would like now and in the future, and I goes acknowledging that there's some future proofing there. So just to say, you don't just become digitally confident and capable, and then it's done. I think there's an acknowledgement that this stuff will shift and shape over your lifetime, over different ages, different jobs, different careers, whatever. And I think technology is clearly changing all the time. So your understanding and awareness and the impact it has on you and society as a whole also has to change. So I think that's kind of acknowledging that it's always a moving landscape with regards to being digitally confident and capable. I'm a historian and also a Luddite. So this question is probably coming from a very particular <laughs> particular angle, but um, or it's coming from coming with with it might be a loaded question, let's put it that way. But oh, are are you in general? Because I was very in- interested by the sort of the 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 negatives and positive aspects you sort of hmm. you, you, you talked about there. In general, are you optimistic about the fact that as young people become more digitally confident and capable, like you're talking about, that it will be used in positive ways? Or are there lots of potential pitfalls that people might fall into? 
I am kind of quite positive about technology and the potential impact it can have on society and and people and, and cultures and the economy. I think, however, we've seen, you know, certainly through things like COVID, but also over the past kind of five plus years, we see the without being too you know, sort of hyperbole, but the, the kind of poisoning of public discourse around on social media. So we've, mm. we, acknowledge it, we acknowledge that these technologies have a massive, can have a massive impact on, on our lives, it can shape politics and policymaking, it can shape public discourse about major societal issues. And, you know, I think that really reflects, you know, I suppose to me, it reinforces why we want people to be digitally confident and capable, because if people don't understand that, information is propagated across social platforms because it's popular and not because it's true then you know that that has a you know understanding of being sort of information and data literate being media literate then that is genuinely as a societal that is of societal benefit and it can it could genuinely have an impact on kind of public discourse of kind of major societal issues i i fear i fear that we we are in a we're in a position now where we can get very technology focused and we can sort of be led by technology to say, look at these wondrous advancements. Mm. And then, then we realize the ramifications it has on society, culture, and the economy. You know, sometimes the disruption is positive, sometimes it's not so positive. And it can mean people lose jobs or, you know, changes to kind of sectors, et cetera. And I think also it raises questions around the regulatory kind of legal kind of issues around actually, sometimes we don't have the legislative framework or the regulatory framework to deal with some of these things because they just don't adapt quick enough. So social media is the basic example. They, yes. are, they are global enterprises, okay, largely US tech companies, but there is the, the coordination required to kind of legislate or regulate these companies currently feels extremely challenging. If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information. Yeah, you, you've got to the heart of my question, I think, and I was thinking of social media. And I, I just, again, with my sort of historian's hat on, you look at the you look at the founding principles of Twitter, for example. They, they look to us now to almost utopian. You know, it's going to be this wonderful yeah. platform where people can just spread positive vibes. And that's definitely not the reality of it. So is, is it worth at least stressing, I suppose, that the digital landscape is, is only one part of our lives and actually we need to detach from it at some points as well? There's two key things there. So one, I think you can look back at any any major tech company now, you know, kind of Google, do no evil, you know, do no harm type stuff. You know, that clearly that has massively gone when you become a multi-billion pound company. Mm. And, you know, when you when you're beholden to shareholders and you you suddenly have monopolistic powers, essentially, you know, you are you are market makers, you are dominant players in the market. I think that massively changes the way in which you do stuff because it is about horizontal scaling and vertical scaling your technologies and your apps and everything. So I think you know that that massively changes the game from you being a the, you know the, the young startup that disrupts search engines to becoming essentially one of the, the the three or four major technology companies in the world. Think about Facebook. You know they have nearly two billion, maybe more, kind of essentially kind of users, mm. and that means they're they're on the face of it one of the largest countries in the world, but you know, their, their ability to influence perceptions, the, the ability to target advertising, or, the, or rather the platform's ability to advertisers and other people to, to target populations and demographics is actually profound, which we've never seen before. So you cannot do that with, with newspapers or print media or kind of traditional media. 
Sure. So that I think that's where you have that thing about you can see why many governments are talking about new regulatory efforts to to do that. And we're not even really talking about the wider sort of data protection, you know, consent around sharing personal data. That's that is a kind of a, a much more conflated issue. I think the point you the second point you raised around well, actually, you know, why why you know we sort of distinguish between the say the real world and the digital world. Well, mm. the, the digital world is the real world, and I think sure. we have to acknowledge that. You know, people can live extremely fulfilling lives online, and they can make friendships. They can communicate with people across the world. You can embrace cultures. You can you can do so many things with the power of the internet. But then, actually, I think it's part of that kind of the the, the wider piece around balance. So clearly. If you're connected to a screen for for twenty four seven, then that's that's not a good thing, sort of physiologically anyway. But I think we have to accept that you know you can't you can't get rid of technology. Technology innovation is these things have been invented; they are available. You know, we know how to do this sort of stuff. This, the technology is pervasive and ubiquitous, and has become an intrinsic part of our lives. I don't think we can wrap that back too much, but we have to. Perhaps that all that demands is. We want people to be much more aware of, of the, the, the ramifications of using these technologies and how your data is used and the dependencies that we have on critical digital infrastructure. But also, I think they, increasingly, we, we have to have much more kind of robust legal and regulatory effects for pushing for the digital rights of citizens to say, actually, you know, if these, these should be personal data, like these tools and technologies and infrastructure, they should be much more citizen and, and user-centered. And actually, there should be much more control of our personal data. We can't just have these dominant US, larger US tech companies essentially controlling our, our major kind of global digital infrastructure. It's going to be very, very challenging in the future. And when you look at what is regulated in public life to quite a large degree in some extent. A lot of these digital platforms are not regulated at all, are they? So it's just, uh, it, it becomes very interesting in that way. Well, and, and I say also, so, so the idea of regulating them in the sense of like, you know, from a, say, a media kind of content moderation perspective is, is sure. futile and mm. and kind of absurd. There's no way you could do this at scale to make it effective because they would, they would require millions of people moderating content in real time. So yeah. I think there, there's some real, real challenges about how we map our kind of our current view of media in the sort of traditional sense and how we that kind of works in the in the digital world and clearly the impact it has on discussions opinions behaviors the european eu referendum was a great example in the uk and i suppose you could talk about the 2016 us presidential elections they were two major events you know the cambridge analytica stuff these they, i think this has really brought to the fore the influence and the ability to to kind of do stuff in a political sense using these major social media platforms how does all of this tie in tom with this term we hear a lot about, but I'm probably not very sure I know exactly what it is. But the digital economy, how, how, how does this all how does this all link? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I would say I think the word maybe the word digital economy is a bit of a maybe it doesn't mean anything because I, <laughs> I would I'd, I'd argue show me a bit of the economy that's not digital. So I suppose you know when we're talking about the digital economy, I think we're essentially talking about the economy. Yes, there are you know if you if you view it in kind of traditional vertical kind of industry sectors, then yes, there is there is a traditional kind of IT telecoms kind of software sector, but clearly. Digital is a, is, is a cross-cutting part of essentially, if not all, every economic sectors. So I suppose that that acknowledges the kind of wider impact. I think people refer to the digital economy in a policy sense to refer to digital innovation, the knowledge economy, the kind of high-value skills and industries and R&D that we would want to kind of future-proof Wales' or the UK's economy. And yeah, that kind of links to things like the 
the recently kind of deprecated UK industrial strategy, you know, these these grand challenges, these major economic initiatives which are going to sustain for the next kind of 15, 20, 30 years. That's I think that's that's the sort of language that you'll hear kind of politicians and policymaking refer to the digital economy. And that's where you get this real focus on digital skills and curriculum and qualifications reform and what what do young people what you know what are young people able to do when they leave compulsory education or to go into tertiary education or to you know apprenticeships colleges universities and they, you know, what are they prepared for after they've they've finished their formal education and training when tom commented on the social media etc that immediately reminded me of many of the conversations i had with my research participant sensory impaired users our research found out actually a very small percentage of the respondent about 13% of the respondent they are aware of online security and the safety they are very careful in making online comments. They are very careful in sharing personal information with others because the disability made them aware and kind of brought a sense of vulnerability for this group to consider going online. On the one hand, we can't avoid really using digital media. On the other hand, this kind of a feeling vulnerable, feeling could be easily targeted in the dangerous digital world to a degree put people off from using digital service, there were, especially with people with severe impairment or dual impairment, they're more aware of their limits in critically evaluating all kinds of information they received online. So the easiest solution for some of the users would be, I just try not to use the online digital services as much as possible. But this, of course, then brought in other problems in managing their life. And also, I bet you or probably also be aware of this during the COVID, whatever the news people access to, to a large degree, if, you know, people follow the BBC, BBC actually enjoyed a great popularity during the COVID crisis. But on the other hand, on the digital devices, what is trending on the digital media doesn't necessarily mean it's the truthful information. I'm aware of people during the COVID telling me COVID-19 coronavirus is man-made is conspiracy, and all this vaccine is to put out under control. So this kind of conspiracy theory has been circulated widely on social media. This inclusivity probably is for people with disability and people without disability. Is this critical abilities, how the, with the government regulatory uh, policies and with the uh, self-regulation among the tech companies and also from the users and the cultivate the dig- uh, digital literacy. There, there should be a lot of things to be done in terms of creating the healthy digital environment. In the future, Jan, how can digital technology be designed to be more inclusive? Ever since I started researching on this topic, I probably mentioned earlier, I downloaded quite a lot of apps on my phone. And those apps, for example, can, if you turn your camera on pointing at at an object, the app will tell you in voice what's the color, what's the shape, or even estimate what that object could be. And also I feel I'm using more, use the voice activated feature in, in my own computer. This technology design doesn't necessarily need to be catered to say this technology is assistive technology only for people with sensory impairment, and that is for people without. 
I personally felt this technology design should be designed in a way that benefits all population as well. It's all make, make lives easier for everybody. So that's what, what, what I hope to be. I'm going to ask you both to get your crystal balls out now, and I know, know this isn't always easy, uh, but just briefly, could you tell me what you think the future looks like for, well, for digital technology in general, but also for your particular areas of research? So um, Tom first, I think. This, <laughs> this is always very, very tough. Uh, yeah, thank, thanks, Sam. I think um, <laughs> sort of the, the, the sort of future gazing, sort of futurist stuff is always, is always really challenging. And uh, actually, I was speaking to some of my master's students about this on our, on our digital education module a couple of weeks ago. I think you can sometimes get, there's the kind of near term sort of future where actually you can, you can probably get an understanding of where we will be around digital technologies and education and what's kind of quite likely. And then you can get extremely speculative when you look in the longer term. And, you know, I think you can, you can kind of jump into the future about the impact of artificial intelligence on education, the kind of augmented reality, kind of virtual reality stuff. I think we acknowledge that there are kind of, there's, there's huge benefits you know, we, we particularly when we go back to the point about digital economy, the expectation of economy and society for having digital fluencies or digital behaviours and dispositions that can be used in a variety of contexts. So I think there's an increasing expectation of learners to be able to do this kind of stuff when they when they leave education and to be able to apply it to a variety of settings and contexts. And I think that means not only being able to use a range of different technologies. Um, and apply them to different contexts, but also to have an intrinsic understanding of, of I suppose, how technology works in a variety of in a variety of settings. So, you know, I think if we see the massive shifts for curriculum reform, both across the UK over recent years, but also across a range of different countries and jurisdictions, you've seen this big push for programming, physical computing, smart technologies and infrastructure, you know, artificial intelligence. We're we're sort of preparing young people for using and applying these types of technologies to a range of different settings, thinking about things like inclusive learning. So actually, how do we have kind of bespoke and inclusive learning for a range of different learners, you know, acknowledging that all learners have, have a range of different needs that need to be satisfied as part of formal education. I think we are talking about things like virtual reality and augmented reality, about how they could be used in a in a variety of settings. But I think if we're looking a bit further, we're going to thinking about actually how realistic, and this is where I'm probably going to use my kind of criticality and sort of, you know, might be a bit more kind of uh, critical about the, the impact of technology in the sense of, you know, when we start looking at things like adaptive digital learning materials or kind of bespoke individualized learning, so, you know, the, the wondrous potential benefits of artificial intelligence in an education and kind of learning and teaching context. I think we, we have to be very, very careful about not thinking in a sci-fi future sense about, you know, what, what is quite likely. And also, you know, there raises some really interesting kind of ethical, legal, ethical kind of professional considerations around actually, what does that mean for learners? Is it learner-centered? Is it beneficial for learners? What happens to the data? Is this going? Is this information and data going to kind of private companies? You know, how long will that data be stored for? So, you know, we've seen some examples. I'll give you a very, very brief example. There's, there was something in the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, last year around there are some schools in China who are trialing ostensibly these kind of AI headsets, which, which purport to be able to determine when learners are concentrating or paying attention. So, you know, there's some interesting, so there's, you can ask some questions around how, you know, from a cognitive kind of behavioral neuroscience perspective about how much we know about the brain 
to be able to wear a headset that says, yes, this child is concentrating and this, this child is engaging and learning. And then also it's used in a behavioral sense. So, you know, the teacher at the front of the class is able to, has essentially like a dashboard, um, a real-time dashboard of, you know, what's happening with the learners in, in their classroom. And even more so, parents are able to view the dashboard over their mobile phone so they can essentially check up on their children throughout the school day to see if they're paying attention. And again, this is at one level that feels quite, you know, potentially quite interesting and empowering to say, well, actually, you could use that information if it's robust and reliable to say to have bespoke individualized learning for those learners. But on the other sense, it's like, well, actually, how scientifically rigorous is that headset? What does it show what we think it shows? You know, so if someone's not paying attention, are they actually not paying attention, or is it just using an algorithm to determine in a very naive way that then they're not actually engaging the learning within that sort of setting and context? And then also there's an interesting thing around the public visibility. So everyone, all parents can see all learners. So suddenly there's a very interesting kind of public, you know, sort of scorecard of, of kids who are behaving or not behaving or otherwise. So, you know, I, th- I think we, we we see the massive potential benefit of technology and education. And I think we should we should largely be quite positive about its potential utility. But I think we probably, COVID has really exacerbated some of this. I think we probably need to be much more considered and critical about how educational technology are used, who benefits from them, where does the data go? You know, is it about private companies sort of trialing new technologies and collecting data on young people? We don't really know what happens with that data. And also, you know, I think that point around, I think there has to be a real big push to, to make this much more learner-centered, pupil-centered, citizen-centered in the sense of, technologies and you know digital things should be much more designed for the benefit of of humans rather than perhaps the benefit directly just for the benefit of companies so i think there is huge optimism for the future for the development of technology but i think there has to be the power imbalance have to has to shift and i think it, these things cannot be done to learners they have to be kind of co-constructed and co-designed and for the benefit of users and learners Okay, thank you. And Jan, the future. Right. One thing I'm kind of certain is the UK is entering an aging society. This is the projected number before the COVID by 2040. Nearly one in seven people in the country is projected to be aged over 75. As we discussed earlier, sensory impairment is a health condition associated with aging. So therefore, the sensory impaired population will be on the rise and that there will be more and more demand associated with this particular demographics access to digital services and the use of digital media in general. Very much similar to what Tom said, I argue is the future technology design need to be user-centered. The technology design can't be just a purely driven by profit. For such a vast growing population entering the aging bracket, and the technology need to be customized to fit into the purpose, how they manage their life, to access service, to gain truthful, reliable information, and to use the technology to make life easier for them. So therefore, to achieve that goal, I think the industry, researchers, charities, and the users need to work together. I think there's also a very interesting and specific context for Wales that we that I think is is kind of quite unique in some respects. And I think you know, there's the ability, the opportunity for Wales as this sort of digital and technology kind of policy testbed. So we have some really interesting challenges. Bilingual, we have unique kind of cultural context. We have 
you know, the sort of rural urban challenges. We're trying to engage a range of different communities across Wales. And this builds on some recent work that we've been doing with Digital Communities Wales, a Welsh government funded project around sort of inclusion, digital inclusion in health and social care. But I think, you know, we've seen the publication of a new digital strategy for Wales. You know, I think digital plays such a massive part across all portfolios, the future economy, all the economic aspirations are kind of predicated on this for Wales. We're doing stuff in an educational sense. We're talking about sort of digital health and social care. We're talking about national infrastructure investments. We're talking about digital connectivity. Wales, it feels like there's loads of potential here. And it, you know, Wales as a, as a digital testbed is quite an attractive proposition. So I think you know, that kind of ties together Jan and I's work. And I think lots of other researchers at Swansea University, particularly the work in the computational foundry, but it feels like you know there's there's an interesting kind of nexus of, of opportunity here, and I think the next five years could be quite interesting, particularly in a post-COVID kind of post-Brexit economic kind of perspective, and also the positioning of Wales within the context of you know regional development and kind of you know the leveling up agenda in the UK, but also in a global competitiveness piece. So I think it ties together a lot of the themes we've spoken about today, and I suppose I I, I just hope we are able to to sort of convincingly pitch Wales as this very attractive kind of digital testbed where people will want to come here, trial out new technologies, you know, high level R&D, and it's a very kind of cool place to do tech stuff. And I think, you know, hopefully that we'll, we'll be talking in a few years' time that you know, Wales is known on an international stage for doing some of this stuff. But I think we've, we have a few opportunities, and I think that over the next year or two, there's going to be some, some very interesting stuff happening in Wales. Well, an interesting point to finish on, and, and thank you both for a very interesting discussion throughout. If you want to learn more about Tom and Jan's research, you can find more information on their Swansea University staff profile pages. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening. And thank you once again to our guests, Dr. Yan Wu and Professor Tom Crick. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please follow. I'm Sam Blacksland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.